Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And today we're going to finish up our case from Englewood, California, about the murder of three little girls. If you have not listened to part one that released on Sunday, go back and do that so that you're not lost, people. You're going to need part one. You're going to need it. Where we left you was we've had a lot of suspects. We've got an angry, angry mob in Englewood, California. That's literally. They are boozing. Angry. They are tying rope from a tree and they are building a hole in the ground building they are digging a hole in the ground because they want to lynch this person yeah we have we do the bean so gang. so many things yes the, the bean, bean gang. field gang sorry oh, yeah. yeah that's different <laughs> yeah i hate to misrepresent them yes we have one man right now that they are hot on the tail of is fred gatsy he goes by freddy the sailor he is as his wife described has sadistic tendencies and Where I'm going to pick up is when the police interview good old Margaret Rigby. Now, if you remember in part one, Margaret actually was the one that was like, hey, about 530 on Saturday afternoon, I saw a man. My house is located right between Sentinella Park where the girls went missing and the Baldwin Hills where they were found. And I saw a man with blood on his clothes clothes run by about 530. Well, she identified she's given a photo Mm -hmm. of Fred Gatsy and she's like, well, hell's bells. That's That's the man that I saw. Oh, Mm -hmm. wow. All the park employees and children who were interviewed, uh, originally interviewed, agreed when they were shown the photo of Gatsy that he indeed was the man, including Olive Everett. Now, yes, she said, yes, this was the man who talked to her on Friday in the park the day before the girls went missing. He could flip his wrists backwards on his arms. He had a wife, a daughter, in a vehicle. And yes, she had originally on Sunday identified Orthel Strong yeah, out of the lineup as that's well. That's what throws me off with her. But then she was shown the photo of Fred Gatsy. And remember, Fred Gatsy and Orthel Strong, they look alike. They look like they could be brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she was like, um, yeah, wait, nope, that's that him. is him. Okay. Mm-hmm. The heat is on. It is so hot and here. And not only do the police want him, but the mob do as well. The at this point, it's kind of a let's hope that we find him before the mob does, because uh-huh. then we won't be able to bring him to justice. The mob wants a suspect so bad. No, just like you like to bring in paranormal when you can, you guys, I can't resist me a psychic reading. Mm, okay, love me a good psychic reading. And this 1937 case even has a psychic teaser. So does mine. Oh. Well, yeah. another coincidence mm-hmm. that we had no idea of. Mm-hmm. So your case Thursday yes. is going to be bringing us some more psychic action. On July 2nd, a psychic toured the Baldwin Hills, and she told of where he had, where the perpetrator had parked the truck, where he had led the girls down the ravine, and that he never returned to Inglewood. She said that he was hiding out in a beach town, staying close to him was a pasty-faced fat man with perverted tendencies who is even worse than the murderer. What a horrible description. I know. The murderer has shaved off his tiny mustache and is even wearing women's clothing as a disguise. She said he will return to the scene of the crime. He has bad teeth, 
and issues with his feet and ankles. And this story was released to the press and ran for many days. So now, remember, they're still, like, taking tips. So now tips are mm-hmm. coming in hot. With this psychic reading out yes. there, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like, we know that so-and-so has bad teeth and horrible angles. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> we'll we know this in. fat, pasty bastard <laughs> with perverted tendencies. It's him. It's yeah. Bob around the corner. <laughs> <Bob>. <laughs> right. Yeah, I could see how this would be a mess mm-hmm. after they released that article (laughs) definitely the media did not help any of the situation of what ends up going down by the way pamela everett during her research remember she's the author of little shoes this is about Mm -hmm. her family this is all the research she did about the murder the girls two of the girls that were murdered were her aunts that she did not know about until later in life so she found an interview that was done and published from bert Sorensen, a local shop owner who said that Fred Gotze had stopped into his shop in December 1936 and had a silent fat guy with him. He, Fred Gotze was looking for work. He claimed that they had a falling out when Gotze showed up drunk and doped up. I'm sorry, a silent, a silent fat guy with him. Silent fat guy. And, the re- and he remembers, yeah, yeah. So here's the problem, though, which I caught right away. And so did Pamela Everett. Remember when I was telling you about Gatsy and giving you like a brief history about how he had been arrested before and all that yes. stuff? Uh, he was still in the state prison in December 1936 and wasn't released until he remember I said he was paroled 1937. OK, which is what the prison records also show. But remember, in it was in December when the girls had reported to their parents that someone had tried to lure them away from the park and they told the police and yes. the police were like, yeah, don't tell anybody about this. Let's see if we've been on the DL. Yeah, yeah, let's see if we can catch him in action and get this guy. You know, sir. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how they sounded. So, <laughs> I think so. Tell me it wasn't Amber. No one can prove it. I just picture him like the old time coppers. Mm-hmm. You know, like <laughs> definitely cigar hanging out of their mouth. Cute cigar, little top hats. Oh, so many cigars. So yes. suspenders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here are some other notable interviews that were found during her research as well. H.D. Roberts of the Welfare Department came forward and said that Sunday morning he had encountered a man with a freshly shaved mustache that had a fasty-paced white bastard guy with him. (laughs) Fat. A fat, pasty-faced white guy. To be that guy that's like the pasty faced like and, and never pervert. <laughs> and never says anything like yes. the psychic said he doesn't talk the um the store owner said it now hd roberts like, yeah, is saying it. i remember this pasty guy yeah this fat pasty bastard disgusting human yes i know that was mute <laughs> like can you and then to be if people are like yeah it's it's joe it's, right you know here, poor joe's just like what i'm I allergic do? to the sun and i have you know a glandular problem stop so unfair oh my gosh yeah i just i feel bad for the people that got labeled as that yeah. guy yeah for for sure <laughs> definitely so he's like yeah there's you know this freshly shaved mustache he's got the fat pasty guy with them and he appeared nervous he said he was broke he signed a fake name and address on a sales slip and said that he had been drunk the night before and asked asked hd roberts do you think i'm okay to drive and Roberts was like, why doesn't the fat guy drive? <laughs> he's like, this guy doesn't talk much and right. he's creepy. And he, the, and the, um, the newly naked faced man, as I wrote in my notes, was like, oh, he can't drive. He's sick. So he's like, okay, whatever. Just don't 
whatever, just get out of my mm. store or, you know, my welfare department. I don't know what he was there for, but, but it was an interview that this HD Roberts did f- f- with a newspaper. Gotcha. Now, then George Ray on July 2nd came forward to police. Now, remember, July 2nd is actually when the psychic was doing her reading. Okay. So George Ray comes forward and he's like, I've got game changing information. That's literally a quote. Okay. He said there there was a WPA crossing guard named Albert Dyer that talked to him on Monday night after the girls' bodies had been brought in, but before the autopsies had been performed. And George Ray felt that Dyer knew things about the way they had been killed that no one could have known, not even the medical examiners. Now, the reason Ray knows that is because George Ray is an employee of the medical clinic where the autopsy was performed, and he was troubled by the details that Dyer was providing him. He had had too much positive information. Now, if you don't remember from episode one, Alfred Dyer was a part of the search party, and he was identified by a child as a crossing guard. There was initial tips that there was a man seen coming from the Baldwin Hills wearing a crossing guard uniform. And there was a child that identified Albert Dyer as a man that he saw playing in the park on Saturday morning mm-hmm. with, um, or not playing, I'm sorry, not playing in the park, just in the park on Saturday yeah. morning. So when police show up to question him, he immediately says, I, I didn't do it. I didn't kill them kids. He pulls out a newspaper clipping. Yeah, he had been the carrying clipping. Mm-hmm. in his pocket, remember? It all seemed very suspicious, but Albert Dyer's mental capacity is eight to 10 years old. So when police, or when uh, this dude, George Ray, comes forward, police are like, um, no, we already questioned Dyer about all this. We questioned him for 30 minutes. And his dull wife said he was in the garden, he was right? In the that garden. was the only mm-hmm. verification they had of his alibi, correct? Right. Yep, yep, yep. His wife's and neighbors, like he's, he's in the garden. That is not good enough for me. He's in the garden. And they also felt like because of his WPA crossing bar- guard badge, that Dyer kind of felt like he was a police officer and could be a part of the investigation. You know what I mean? They're just like, he's very dull, he's dim-witted, and he thinks he's a cop. So it should be noted that prior to going to the police, George Ray did try to sell his information to a news outlet, but they rejected him because Dyer had already been questioned by the police, so they decided... So then he was like, fine, you're not going to pay me for it. I'll go to the police a full five days after claiming he had talked to Dyer. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he was like... uh, All right. Now, this is how, this is when shit starts to get a little bit cray cray. On July 2nd in the early evening, Dyer bursts into the police station and demanded to know what the police wanted with him. And the police were very confused because they're like, we don't want anything with you. (laughs) They're literally looking at each other like, did you call this guy in? No. Did you call this guy in? He's just like, tell me what you want. Right. And he's like, what do you want with me? You've already questioned me and I've told you I don't know anything. And so then they're like... Yeah, dude, we we want nothing to do with you. So we're probably like we do now yeah. that you're acting you may, so suspicious. You may go, sir. And as he leaves, the chief was like, "Hey, you two interns, tail him." I mean, I'm sure they <laughs> right? were interns, but he put two men on him. Like you it, need well, to follow yeah, him that was around. Really this is sporadic, super weird. Mm-hmm. It, it it actually even said in the book that it took the police even a little while to realize who the hell he was. Like, oh, oh, you're that. You're the dull-witted man that we interviewed initially. Yeah, they didn't Uh even connect it right away. So they shadowed him. Now, on July 4th, that was July 2nd. Now it's July 4th. They had been shadowing him for two days. They decide to make their move. They pick him up and tell him that he's needed for questioning. He goes willingly. Mm -hmm. No problem. 
But before they get to the station, they take a detour and they park in a secluded area and start hammering him with questions and basically holding him hostage. Oh, okay. Now, remember, this man has a mental maturity of eight to 10 years, uh, an an eight to 10 year old boy. After 90 minutes of constantly denying being involved with the girl's disappearance and murder, uh, they even were like, okay, where were you? If you were a part of the search party, where were you when the girls were found? He's like, I I can tell. He gave him a description of where he was. And they finally take him to the police station where six men were waiting in the interrogation room. And for an hour straight, they were questioning him while he was repeatedly denying having anything to do with the murders. So at this point in time, he's been in their custody for like three hours. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, no, I have nothing to do with them. So then they're like, you know what? Why don't we go ahead and take you in front of the mob over to the Hall of Justice? Oh, no. Where the mob is at. Okay, this just completely went south for me. And so they're like, we're going to give you a change of scenery, see if you cooperate then. What in the heck? Now, news spreads quickly that Dyer was being questioned and that he's being moved. There was a mob waiting when they arrived, and now they also have his wife as well in for questioning at the hall, and they make sure that Dyer sees his wife in the next interrogation room. And this is a man that has the the mental capacity of of, an 8 to 10-year-old. Like I said, Mm -hmm. it made me suspicious originally because it's like, mm, you know, he was so... He had that article, and, Mm -hmm. you know, he was so quick to be like, I didn't do anything, you know. But, but this is not okay. How many times have you happened upon a child and they have been like, what? I didn't do it. That's true. I mean, my own, I have four boys. My children have done that before where I'm like, what? I was getting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. What did you do then? What do you know? This, like, this just took like the worst turn. They had all of these suspects this whole time, never moved in on one. And all of a sudden they're just like, okay, well, this one's going in front of the mob. Yeah. Because he came. What? Yes. Literally. Yes. The other people have just as much suspicion as him. I just wasn't prepared for them to just completely. Because some George Ray dude comes in and is like, you know what? He comes in and is like, he talked to me the, you know, the night the girl's bodies were Uh in. But the reason that Dyer would have had information about the condition of the girl's bodies is because he was a part of the, he was was there when the girls were found. Not, I mean, he happened upon it. Crowds came upon the crime scene it's not like the boy scouts find found him and they immediately yeah. took them out they're in a ravine so it's like so if he and it was confirmed he was in he pulled out that newspaper article because he was in the photo he was absolutely there and a part of he saw the girl's bodies so mm-hmm. he would have had information mm-hmm. about the condition of their bodies oh okay. to talk to with so he would have known the details yes with oh george gosh. ray which the police initially they didn't go anywhere with George Ray's tip that he called life-changing information or game-changing information, excuse me, because they're like, yeah, he was there. We confirmed that he was there. He saw the girls' bodies. Of course, he'd have information about it. Like, And we've already questioned him. He was in his garden. His wife and neighbors saw him. Okay. I mean, he was on my he he was on my radar. I'm not going to well, lie, and, but and he can he can stay there. We'll just discuss I'll keep him. On yeah, it, but we'll just discuss. It I think my the reason I'm kind of like so frustrated is the interrogation this is this is just a horrible way to do even if it was him this is horrible listen hold on to your titties okay because (laughs) you're not gonna like what i have to say next and like i I had just said they made sure that he saw his wife Mm -hmm. was being interrogated too and it is now well after 8 p.m an initial questioning started 2 33 o'clock okay after 20 minutes of being in the Hall of Justice, Chief Sanders emerges and tells reporters that Dyer had confessed. Now, let me take you through that timeline again. 
He was questioned in a police car for approximately two hours, all while saying he did not do it. He was taken into the police station and questioned for another hour by six men, all at once, still saying he didn't do it. Then he was transported to the Hall of Justice, and interrogations did not resume on record until after 8 p.m. And within 20 minutes, he confessed. There is a gap in time here that is later discovered that Dyer had been left alone for several hours with two officers, no counsel, and had taken been taken back into the interrogation room where he suddenly confessed within 20 minutes. What happened? No one, no one knows what happened in that gap of time when a man of limited mental means was alone without any record and with those two police officers. Did anybody see him after that visually? Like, I'm just wondering after if what? he didn't get the crap beat out of him or something. It, like, it, after that confession. It did, did not say that, other than he, I mean, just at this point, he's wore down and he looks like crap that way. But no, I don't know. Just wondering. Right, what that, I don't know what was made. Now, the officers, and I'm sorry because I did forget to write in my notes their names. There's a lot of names in this case, so I'm trying to narrow some things mm-hmm. down to make it easier. But the two police officers ended up testifying that, like, well, yeah, we just sat with him. But their testimony wasn't, like, very strong in the the defense's eyes. They're like, yeah, I'm not convinced that you just literally sat for hours without questioning him while you were waiting for the town, you yeah. know, the chief to come to the Hall of Justice and resume the questioning after 8 p.m. So you just sat there and didn't say anything no, to no him. No words. There was no... And all of a sudden he's just like, I did it. I did it. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really suspicious. For the sake of time, I'm going to tell you that Alfred Dyer ends up giving nine different confessions, each one getting more and more exact to the true events and to fit the narrative the police and the prosecutor wanted. Many of the confessions, especially the first ones, were very inaccurate in detail. You can get those details from Pamela Everett's book. But none of that seemed to matter. They had a confession. They had nine of them, as a matter of fact. The mob had their man, and the town can finally feel safe again. So they just kept shaping the confession that they wanted. Yes, and in leading it. questions. And she goes, in the in the book, you can read, it is all, there are no open-ended questions. It is all yes or no, which if you know anything about an investigation, and it's one of the first things that you're taught as an investigator, you can only ask open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. You cannot ask things like, so, and then you tied a rope around the girl's necks, correct? Mm-hmm. You are leading the person, especially someone who has the mental capacity of an 8 to 10-year-old, into a yes or no Absolutely. question. Absolutely. Even in therapy, that's kind of the same thing. Yes. You don't want to shape someone's answers or the way they feel about certain things. So Absolutely. you don't ask the specific nope. questions like that. Right. Like, that made you really sad, right? Yeah. yeah. You felt horrible, didn't you? Right. Exactly. I am harming you by making you listen to me tell you this story, right, Amber? Aren't I? Right. <laughs> So um, Pamela Everett, the author of Little Shoes, is a law professor, and she pointed out a few important details. When Dyer was given a public defender, now typically that defender would try to negotiate a guilty client, like one who had already confessed, into pleading guilty for a lesser sentence to save the person's life. Because, of course, the death penalty is on the table here. Yeah. But that's not what Alfred Dyer's um, defense team does. Their team, and they worked their butt off. This is not a case where a public defender didn't do their work. They they really did try to save this man's life. Oh, they did? Okay. Yes, which Pam points out, she really feels like his attorneys had to have thought he was innocent because they let it go to trial. They did not let him plead guilty, even though they had those confessions. They saw all the problems with the confessions. Oh, wow. And they wanted the jury to see it too. And the fact that... 
we have evidence of fingerprints and they're not matching Dyer's. And, and the, def, the prosecution never talks about fingerprints because they don't have it. So whatever so, happened to the, Ga- what's his name, Gatsy? Gatsy? Yeah, is, he's out now. He has never prosecuted for this crime. Pam points that out in the book of like, there are other suspects that we just narrowed in and <clears throat> got our man to, you know, to pacify the mob. That, essentially. Is my, that is my thing is that there were so many people that had some really suspicious things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, don't get me wrong. He was one of them. How many other people had newspaper clippings about this situation? Because it was such huge news. This just went so quickly south for me with the interrogation. It's horrible. It's horrible. I mean, honestly, his defenders, his public defenders knew that everything on him was circumstantial and that there were serious problems. Okay. With, with the confessions. They're like, this is, this is all circumstantial. They worked the case hard and during the trial, they pointed out the prosecution's flaws of evidence against Dyer and the fact that there was nothing linking him. No fingerprint evidence was brought forth, even though there were some left at the scene, like I said a little while ago. Some of his fing- his fingerprints were left at the scene? No. Or they, w- they weren't, right? No. We had fingerprints, but oh, we didn't uh, have a match to it. Never mind. And I get what you're saying. Because you said there were some left at the scene. I was like, wait, his? Yeah. No. Or you just meant in general there was some in left general. at the scene? Okay. And so... The prosecution just doesn't bring up fingerprints at all to link him. So the defense is like, hey, Listen. jury, there were clear fingerprints at this scene. We know that. It's not matched to anyone. And there's a reason why the prosecution is not telling you about fingerprints. Because there isn't any for him. This is all circumstantial. There is nothing linking him. So the, the defense did a good job of pointing out the holes in the prosecution's mm-hmm. narrative. Like their whole case. So for the defense, they called witnesses that knew Dyer for years and that saw the man in the park with the girls that day. And they testified that it was absolutely not Dyer. They're like, listen, we know Dyer. We would have, uh, upon initially being in. When they saw him. Yes, given um, our statements to the police, we know Dyer. We would have said, yeah, the girls were playing and talking with our Dyer. He was doing tricks. Now, keep in mind, too, Dyer doesn't own a vehicle. He doesn't have a Ford Roadster. He has a wife, but he does not have a child. He does not drive. He's 8 to 10 years old, mentally. He does not drive. Oh, my goodness. He does not do tricks. With his hands. He doesn't do card tricks. He's not called Freddy, Eddie, Meddy, Deddy, Betty, Sailor. <laughs> okay. There's no no link there. You know, when I think of the no. other perspective of this being just an innocent man with limited mental capacity, this is really sad. Yeah. Most definitely. I pointed my finger. I did. Yes. But, I mean, he seemed very suspicious at first, but then. He had some su- suspicious When tendencies. you add that part in that. The girls, like, people knew who he was, and they would have been able to identify him. Yeah, they would have been, like, it was, you know, Alfred Dyer. That's who they were, you know, playing with. Mm, Yeah. This is really sad. This is also what's a little bit suspicious. Back in this time, there was not traditional lineups like there is now. What they did is they had, they called them a showing. So where there's a suspect that's taken into a room and literally shown to people who were eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses then state whether or not this was the right person, literally never giving them other options to go by. They're literally just like, here's this one man. Okay, Is this him? Is this him? Dyer is of similar height to the previous suspects, similar weight, and had that dang tiny mustache. 
Again, oh, it's trending. It, it you is know? so trending. Without giving any other options, it would be easy to say, yep, that's who I saw in the park. Remember Olive initially identifying Orthel Strong mm-hmm. as the guy? I mean, she talked to this man mm-hmm. and then was like, wait, no, Fred Gotzi. Yes, this is the man. The other thing is, is that he was a school crossing guard at the kids' school. Olive knew him. So Olive could have told them, would have told them, yeah. We Friday, Dyer was trying to get us to go rabbit hunting in the park. Oh my right? gosh. No. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah. This is so sad now. Yeah. And I'll I'm live. a jerk. I'm such a jerk. <laughs> well, I was right there with the mob. Well, I like, was just going to say, well. Hey, pass the fifth. Kill the beast. Give me my whiskey. I see you, oh, Amber. I, no, am, but- I am humbled and I, oh. I, I feel horrible. For him. I this think is it's awful. a good example. I let you carry on like that and didn't tell you anything about the case just because I, this is literally, you're an example of how it happens. You've made a fool With, of me. Without knowing any of the other information. But the thing is, is that the jury did. His his defense team was pointed out the they interrogation knew. tactics, the faulty confessions, okay, like they they did a really good job. They pointed out all the inconsistencies and the fact that um, Olive knows he's a school crossing guard. Olive knows mm-hmm. him. That is not the man that was trying to lure them away Friday night. See, that information changes everything. Like mm-hmm. those pieces that the gr- right. the girls knew who he was. That you're and you're just totally forgetting that piece of the investigation of all the the stuff that in the beginning was important. You took Olive's statement and you took the um, psychiatrist's like narrowing, you know, profile and whatnot, yeah. and you honed in on several. I feel men. like they were doing a solid job at right. first, and I don't and know. And then if- all of a sudden, this one man, who initially he comes forward and says, after trying to sell his story to the newspaper, comes forward and says, "This guy knew too much about the condition of their bodies." When he had saw their bodies in the ravine, he knew stuff, mm-hmm. and the police initially are like, "That's not a hot tip." Then all of a sudden, we're going to follow him for two days, and you know what? Like, what happened in that two days when they're following him and seeing how mentally incapable he was, right? Him walking around town doing whatever it is he was doing mm-hmm. for those two days. There's not information about it. I mean, but when what he first if they in, started, that was a little yes, suspicious, but. But rumors are going around. No one, everyone knew who the suspects were. Okay. The mm-hmm. mob, you got to re- remember the mob is out there. So. It's more than likely that he burst in because someone was like, oh, they're on, they they want you. Yeah. All because this guy had come forward and was, you know, speaking his name and the police Mm -hmm. were just like, yeah, no. Well, with limited mental capacity, probably Mm -hmm. didn't have a lot of great skills to handle frustration. Yeah, exactly. all right. I'm here. What yeah. do you need? I heard Take you want to be now. You the, know, the, you got to remember if Fred Ray, whatever his name is, that Ray dude, I have to go back in my notes, but um, the Ray dude who started essentially in my eyes started all this hullabaloo, George Ray. Okay. If he was talking to trying to sell his stuff to the reporters, they wouldn't buy it. So then five days later, he goes to the police. You know, he's going around town saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, they it got back to, to, Dyer, and I believe that's why he went into the police station like, okay, what do you need to ask me? Everyone's telling me that you're on to me now, Mm -hmm. you know? They're doing these eyewitnesses like, here's your one man. Here's who we think it is. What do you guys think? But we're not going to give you any other faces to compare him to. And so without giving any other options, it was easy that some of them were like, yep, we saw him in the park. Now, was it the same people that 
they had shown pictures to before? Yes. They had identified Fred Gatsy and, yes, it's all the same like, but people that they're originally, and... yeah. No, Olive, I mean, they knew him. Not anybody who knew him. Okay, that's what I was Any wondering. Any witnesses that they interviewed that knew Dyer they were like, ask. absolutely not, it was not him. No, they told the police it wasn't him. Oh. They just didn't care. So He was an easy person to target, yes. it sounds like, and they knew they could do it. Yep. And they just, they only paid attention to the evidence that fit their narrative. So they've got these people who, again, remember, they're not showing any other faces to. Mm -hmm. These people that don't know Dyer. And they're, they saw a man in the park. They give him no other options. And there's like, yeah, because he does resemble, he resembles Fred Gatsy and he resembles Orthel Strong. He resembles the guy that Olive had even described. Oh, this is the other thing. The prosecution had to now change their narrative because originally that Ford Roadster was a big part of the investigation. Yeah. And the fact that, I haven't mentioned this yet, but Sentinella Park and where the girls were found is a three and a half mile walk. So you know what the police do? They're like, we're going to take the vehicle out of the equation completely. We're going to go ahead and pick up three little girl volunteers and we're going to walk them all the way to the entrance of Baldwin Hills. So it proves that Dyer could have absolutely lured the girls away and walked with them for three and a half miles. So you're telling me in three and a half miles, not one of the townspeople saw him walking, walking. with mm -hmm. three little girls, knowing he doesn't own three little girls because mm -hmm. he has no children. Yeah, but that was never a w eyewitness testimony at all. So this this is what they do. They, they did this experiment. And do you know, Amber, it turns out that if you have legs, you can walk three and a half miles. <laughs> You don't say. Yeah. They walked those girls three and a half miles, no problem. So they were like, by golly, it's... It is it's, scientific mm -hmm. fact now. They can walk three they miles. They can walk three and a half miles because they have legs, and so that's how he must have gotten them there because they had to fit, set the narrative of, because Dyer doesn't drive. Mm -hmm. How did he get the girls three and a half miles? Forget the Ford Roadster everyone's been talking about and the fact that People saw two little girls in the front of that roadster and one in the back box, right? And we have no one saying that we saw a man walking with three little girls. A man that was well-known, it sounds like. Yeah, because I mean, he, he's a school people... crossing guard. Oh, man. So this, is, this gets even weirder. They had Dyer's genitals medically examined because the extent of the injuries on the girls would have caused serious bruising and possible tearing of male genitalia. Upon initial inspection, his penis was seen to have slight swelling and an unusual large opening at the urethra. However, another examination days later proved that this was just normal for his penis. Dyer was born into very poor means and ended up being raised by a foster mother. His genitalia actually could not be determined to be fully circumcised. They couldn't even tell... It was like a botched job. Oh, ha. Yeah, sorry for the visual. Now, it, it appeared that, so the, the swelling that they initially thought they were seeing uh, later turned out to just be some leftover foreskin. Oh, I, so, got, I got no words. So there's that. And there was back and forth of one medical examiner's like, well, um, I know there is no bruising and tearing, but then they didn't inspect his penis with a microscope or with a, um, excuse me, a magnifying glass. Upon inspection with a magnifying glass, there were slight tears that were abnormal for him. How do you know what's abnormal for him? You didn't, you don't have a controlled group study here. You don't know what his penis looked right. like before the girls died. Like, right. So the prosecution argued that once an examination was done with, with the magnifying glass, they found small tears on his genitalia that indicated abnormal sexual encounters. 
Also, what do you know is abnormal sexual encounter his, for him yeah. with his mutilated genital? Right. <laughs> we listen. All of our out. no. All of our listeners know we can't say ready. we can't say ready. mutilated genital without acknowledging it in some way, shape, or form. I'm just saying. I mean, that dull wife could have been, you know, a freak in the sheets. We don't well, know for sure. And we also, yeah. And I guess you also just don't know. Like, I'm not gonna lie. I've never inspected my husband's penis after intercourse with a magnifying. You better glass. go get that magnifying glass. Is that normal? But I can tell you that, like. A female's genitalia is very, very susceptible to small tears from various different things on accident. I mean, you can scratch yourself on accident with your nail when wiping. Like, mm-hmm. wh- I'm. Uh, this does not. It's, you can know you what imagine, I mean? like, if you were the innocent party in this, having to go through all of that? I was just going to point that out too. With some person it with a magnifying like three, glass, like out. three times. Shifting Ugh. through your pubic hair and looking at your mutilated genital. That's horrible. Genitai? Genitalia? Can we say genitai <laughs> from now? It's a genitai. Yeah, you know, I, I just, I feel really bad for the, and this, with the uh, limited capacity, uh, he don't, yeah. think of how much we prepare kids now for doctors while child checkups and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. here he is just like, well, drop your pants, dire, you know. I know, this is so horrible. Then possibly most damning is the fact that his wife said that she was considering leaving him because he had expressed an interest in being sexual with women younger than her. Now, not necessarily children. There's no mention of that. Okay. Just he was kind of like, you're getting old. old. And I'm kind of thinking that I want someone a little younger and fresher that'll do things that you won't do. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's going to be a hard pill to swallow. uh, Definitely. Also more, most problematic is because he had made this statement, she was sequestered by the prosecution, something that they did as a tactical move because that meant that she also couldn't testify for the defense that Dyer was in the garden all afternoon, the day of the murders. Oh, wow. So they, and they knew that. Knew that. Mm-hmm. So he could not testify, she could not testify for her husband Did she to w- the alibi. Did, was there any indication that she... Like wanted to. I mean, what she was had a, a mental limitation as well, that. and so I don't know. It, you've got to remember this is all being pieced together by mm. this poor woman going through all the newspaper articles and all the court transcripts. So I, we don't have any idea of whether or not of the, of what she, she even thought knew. of the guilt or the yeah. innocence. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. The other thing is is that now all of his neighbors are refusing to say for sure if they saw him in the garden or not. But think of the fact that these are townspeople, guys. Remember the mob. There's a lot of pressure here of like. I think the mob is what put the pressure on. Way too intensely. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like they just gave up. They're like, okay, we're, this yes. works. Yep. We've got one. Well, this is what we're doing. And this is all. They uh, This happened on June 26th. The girls were found on June 28th. They arrested Dyer on July 4th. That's how quick. Wow. Yep. You know, I kind of, when when we're talking about it, it just seems like it's so much longer than that. Mm-hmm. Right. No. That's crazy. That's how fast it was. Also a problem in my eyes. Yeah, because they had so many other people that had legit suspicion. Right. Like, the, Well, and I think that the reason his neighbors aren't going to come forward and say definitively I saw him in the garden is because they the papers are printing everything and no one wants to go down as advocating for this possible child killer. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, the jury, it took days to select the jury. He really didn't get a fair trial at all. Once they did, like, settle on a jury, the newspapers, 
printed not only the jury members' names, but their addresses as well. Oh my gosh. Yes. What? Yup. Something that the jury was all too aware of. So think of the pressure here. Oh, so much pressure. If you find that man innocent, they're coming for you. Of course. Of course. Oh, this is just bad. So the trial started on August 6th of 1937. He was arrested July 4th. The trial starts on August 6th. I've never heard of something happening so quickly. And it did because his lawyers, think of how fast his lawyers had to To prepare. prepare and work. I mean, this is no time for anybody, but they've got those confessions. The trial ended on August 24th. I mean, it took almost the whole month of August because his team tried to work tried. so hard. Yes. They, the state did put on a convincing case, but it's because they had confessions that they were, that, and, and the confessions were allowed into evidence, even though his defense team did try to object to it. And because of the glaringly obvious problems with them. And the judge was like, nope, overruled. Enter them into evidence. Once Dyer confessed, they never considered another suspect. Totally dropped Fred Gotze. Oh, my gosh. Well, not only Fred Gotze, but the other two, they were still, I was still like, they're pretty suspicious as well. The one with the bloody khakis. And And to me, to be honest, there was never any mention that those three men um, knew each other. But to me, one man taking down three girls... Without one being able to run yes, away? Yes, I had questioned that as well. Mm-hmm. And then they were so far spaced out. It was like, how did mm-hmm. how did this I happen? I was one at the bottom of the ravine, one 75 feet up, mm-hmm. and then one is 45 feet up from that. Yep, that was one of the things going through my head mm-hmm. of like, how did this happen? They're so spaced out and nobody tried to run or maybe they did. Right, and that's person. how they ended up, you know, there. yeah. That's and a and good maybe point. that's why they were raped post-mortemly. Is because he did his killing, you know, first and then went back. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But, um, yeah. The defense did do a strong job of trying to highlight the police forced confessions, calling into question the interrogation tactics used, and highlighting his fragile mental state, which the jury had been seeing all month long throughout his trial because Dyer was often saying obscure things, shouting at times, crying at others, rocking back and forth. And at one point, he even asked his lawyers what first-degree murder meant. He had no idea. The defense also brought up the Ford Roadster and the testimony from others about Fred Gotze. But the fact that it would take a cold and calculating person of high intelligence to take on three children and commit the act. Remember how I had to tell you the gruesome detail in part one about the girls' um, mutilated genitals that was used for lubricant to rape them postmortemly. Think of, of someone that's 8 to 10 years old in a mental capacity having the wherewithal to know to do yeah, that. Yeah, I guess. To get the lubricant. This would this scream somebody that's done it before, too. Absolutely. That's a that's a big stretch to me. Did they ever make any, just out of curiosities, any connections with that? Like somebody that has done that? Yeah. Yeah, because actually, the, remember the criminal profiler. One of this, uh, this case is one of the first sexual um, profilers. They said this is some, the profiler said this is somebody who's done it before. Fred Gotze did not have a history of molesting children. Mm-hmm. I just didn't, I didn't know if like in today's times, but you said it's not well known, so may, probably not. But like if they linked that kind of behavior to some like other victims, you know what I mean? You mean other cases? Yeah, like, yeah, like other cases. Because I mean, it's just so, it's horrible. I mean, it's so horrible, but 
obviously not a first rodeo type of situation. Right. Well, remember in part one when I talked about the L.A. County prosecutor saying that there had been other young girls gone missing that had been oh, strangled yeah. and raped and stuff. He was very been. early on trying to link that these could have been together. Okay. And then it was just like, no, we've got our guy. We're done. Yeah. I firmly believe this person absolutely did more crimes than this, and it was just never linked, whoever it was. I um, now believe that at the beginning, you know, he, he, he acted suspicious, and there's, well, there are some things throughout the whole case that I've like, I'm like, mm. But then once you told me about the girls, that was my turning point. The girls knew him well. Right. Olive knew him. She was the, she was the literally school. talked to this guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the, I mean, he was known in town. Mm-hmm. People would have known specifically if it was him. But the profiler, profiler did point out that this is more than likely someone who the girls knew if they were willing to go with them. So there is that. I'll throw that out there. The other thing is that uh, one, of, one of the criticisms of Pamela Everett's book, The Little Shoes that I'm using for majority of my information here, is that we now know that serial killer and rapists place themselves back at the scene yeah. as much as possible. Yeah, and that was and what so I, I know that's where you were going. I knew when you heard that detail that he wanted to help carry the bodies out and that he was a part of the search efforts and stuff. Absolutely. That, that was going to raise a huge red flag for you. Not something that we uh, that we had as a criminal profile back then, but we do now. She doesn't talk about it in the book, but this book is about her personal journey. Mm-hmm. You know, what it did for her family of finding her aunt. I think where stuff. it just went south for me, whether it's the wrong guy or not, is the way they handled it. It's yes. just, I mean, the way they handled the interrogation, mm-hmm. the trial. I mean, yep. it's like they gave up and, and were like, this is who we've got. And, and they did absolutely, and I and, and it's really like to pacify the public, you know, to yeah, get the, the mob, mob off the backs. Absolutely, and I don't disagree with the fact that we know that criminals like this will place themselves back at the scene as much as possible. But at the same token, you do have to remember that this is a small town. It is 1937, and people wanting to help other people and come together as a community is a big thing. So him wanting to be you know, being there and having empathy for what had happened to the girls and whatnot. It's not, it's really not an all or nothing thing there. Like you and I are in the helping profession. If we, if there was a place somewhere, if we were upon, came upon something, I believe that we too would want to help. That doesn't make us a part of it. Right. It's just, we're, we're helpful. I can see having the mentality of an eight to 10 year old too is children have mentalities of of wanting to please adults. Mm -hmm. I could see how it could be interpreted either way. Me too. Yep, that piece, and if definitely. You, you know, if you didn't have the other extra info, yes. you could see both. Well, all the other evidence that it was totally ignored about, you know, the, the roadster, the truck, the people seeing three little girls with a man in the truck, Olive knowing Dyer and saying that's not who we were talking to. I mean, he doesn't yeah. do tricks. They We know, we, we have park employees who were playing with the or were talking to the girl Saturday morning and they're saying we're going rabbit hunting with Eddie the sailor and he's doing we need rope for these rope tricks and he's doing tricks with his hands people saw that and nobody all that saw evidence is no yeah, nobody Alfred. saw a dyer walking around doing you yeah. know no Mm-mm. yeah you know the thing that makes me the most nauseous is if this is the wrong guy that the right one never got exactly 
Uh, because yeah. what they what and, and he did and continued to perpetrate. Yes, absolutely. It just it's so brutal, and it oh my gosh, it just hurts my soul that he yep. the right person was not convicted. Right. Well, and like and even the psychic, whether you believe in him or not, didn't point to Dyer either. There's that also. Ultimately, it just really didn't matter. The Whatever ch- happened to the pasty guy? He's never. I mean, I like I said, once Dyer was arrested on it July, was, everything 4th, was done. Everybody else was oh, out of suspicion. Yeah. And the jury was deadlocked for many days. The confessions at that time proved to be the nail in the coffin, and Albert Dyer was found guilty on three charges of first-degree murder. And the jury, they actually left out the words in their conviction, um, life in prison, so that means that it's up to the judge to sentence him to death. So they knew that that meant the jury members had voted to sentence him to death, but they don't make the jury members actually physically say that. They just say, we found you guilty on all three counts of first-degree murder. End of story. And that is the signal to the judge. Okay, they voted yes for the death penalty, but so that you guys don't have the burden on your conscience of actually sending this man to his death, they come back on August 31st for a sentencing hearing Mm -hmm. where the judge lays down the sentence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When court adjourned, Dyer asked his lawyers when they thought that he would get paroled. He did not understand what had just happened. So on August 31st, 1937, the judge sentenced Dyer to death by, by the gallows or hanging. And I want to, I thought this was very interesting. On September 1st, 1937, a new law went into action that the gallows were no longer a possible sentence because new technology of euthanization was now being used. Albert Dyer was the last person to be sentenced in the state of California to death by gallows. I actually wonder if this was done on purpose that they made his sentencing hearing uh, the day before they could no longer send him to the gallows because the town so desperately wanted to see him hang. I wouldn't doubt that for a second. Because the the uh, trial ended on the 24th, and then by the yeah. 31st, now they've yeah. got a sentencing hearing here's, already? Here's my thing. The person, Have- like the actual person that did this, I don't discredit their desire to have justice for this you know the crime Mm -hmm. but again if we're talking the the wrong person this is horrible it's so awful exactly i thought that was another interesting fact that he was the last person in the state of california to be sentenced to death by gallows but he's not the last person to actually go to the gallows and if you are a patreon member You're going, I found the case. It's a very intriguing case. So if you're a Patreon member, that's your bonus, one of your bonus episodes this month is we're going, I'll cover the last man to actually physically go to the gallows. Um, Because if you were sentenced prior to September 1st, 1937, they still had to carry that out, um, that sentence by death, by gallows. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was, it could be 1945, but if that's what your sentence was then you have to go to the gallows, even though now for the last five, you know, however many years, mm-hmm. um, you know, they've been using euthanization. Nope. You have to go to the gallows. We were talking about this just before, and it's just hard. I mean, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around, okay, this was d- decided that it was not okay to do anymore, but yep. we're going to make but an if exception. It, yeah, if it was in your, if it was in your... If you were sentenced you were prior to yep, prior to September first, nineteen thirty seven. Yeah. We're gonna go ahead and still it's do it. It's not okay, but we're yeah. gonna do it anyway. Yeah. Yep. For you guys. Yeah. Because that's just, what your sentence says. I don't know, we're it's not gonna change like, it. Who made this decision? It's icky. I'm gonna talk about the aftermath a little bit here. 
Pamela Everett's grandparents didn't find peace or justice in the sentence. Her grandfather even stated that she didn't be- that he didn't believe that they had the right man. Oh, okay. I was going to ask if there were other people in all of this that had the same questions of it oh, yeah. being the right person. Hold on. Hold that thought. Okay. Mm-hmm. Pam's father, Pearlie, ended up going to live with a fam- with a friend shortly after because the d- dynamics in the house had changed so much oh, after bet. losing two children. I just don't think you, you can recover from that no, ever. I agree. Many, many reported to Pam Everett when she was doing this research that her grandmother, Mrs. Everett, her hair went completely white right after this. Oh my and gosh. she did not. She was not the same person. She was severely depressed. She never recovered. But literally, and you can see the difference in pictures of like, oh, I bet uh, her hair That's went so stark horrible. white. Mm-hmm. In 1938, even though the case was closed, information was obtained that the jury member who was deadlocked was threatened and pressured to come away with the death penalty. So they were never deadlocked for all those days on his guilt or innocence. Because of the confessions, he was guilty. What they were deadlocked on was life in prison or the gallows. And there was one jury member that did not want him going to the gallows, and he came forward and said that he was threatened that if he did not vote for the gallows, then they put the addresses out there. I mean, correct. Of course. Yep. So one witness, Pascal Wright knew Dyer and knew that this was not the man that he saw in the park that day with the info about the juror. He went to the mayor and asked for the case to be reopened to save Dyer's life. Basically he was told police won't reopen it because it's already closed and we're not going to waste resources, but you can interview people. So he did. And Plenty came forward saying, yeah, it was not Dyer. That is not who I saw. Ultimately, though, they lost in the Court of Appeals because those confessions so harshly damned him. What I'm saying, what I'm wrapping up quickly here for you is that there was a man who started his own investigation because he firmly believed that Dyer was not, was the, not right the, ma- the right man. He had a lot of interviews confirming that. He took it to the mayor. His lawyers were still you know, on board with trying to save him. They took it all to the Court of Appeals, and they lost because of those nine confessions. So on September 16th, 1938, in San Quentin State Prison, a prison we know so well, Albert Dyer was sent to the gallows, which, like I said, it's no longer being used, but they had to keep it on hand for all those people to carry out all those sentences. Uh-huh. Due to his small size, he had to have a very long drop for a clean break, which I will report did actually happen, so it was very quick. It wasn't it wasn't a situation like I'm going to tell you about in the bonus episode. <laughs> I'll tell okay. you that. Uh, his foster mother could not afford to, to claim his body, so he was buried at San Quentin Memorial Yard with only his inmate number, 60804, on it. He was 33 years old at the oh time of gosh. his death. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It really is. That is the case of... The three little shoes that were all lined up. The horrible. That's so sad. If you know that, I feel like there's four victims here. I just, I don't know. I know there's some things that is suspicious about him, but oh, I don't know, guys. It's a tough one. Ultimately, whether it's him or not, I really think that investigators just kind of gave up. Mm -hmm. They were being pressured. And the, the mob town was wanted growing blood. restless and larger. That mob was getting larger every and, day. And even when, you know, they did try to appeal, the, uh, you know, 
they're just like, no, we can't. Like, we're, we're done yeah. with this. Yeah. We're done. Well, in the court of appeals, they're like, I'm sorry, you're appealing and your client confessed. Nine like, times. You're, yeah, you're mm-hmm. the dumbasses that took him to trial when he confessed. You should have tried to negotiate for life in prison. You're bad. Yeah. You know, not looking at the facts of the case. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, man, what a just loaded, horrible case. Right. And just so, I can't imagine what these families went through. Right. Makes well, me so sad. Yeah. There, and Pam talks about her family, especially, you know, more in the book and what she learned about them. But there was some troubled times, that's for sure. Oh, that I was, bet. It I was bet. hard for them. Oh, she did an amazing job, though, piecing things together oh, yeah. on this. Yeah. Because it sounds like this is something that was, it kind of. It was heavily Died covered. with the case. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, it was heavily covered in the newspapers of that time, mm-hmm. but then it was not brought forth in her family they history at all. They got a person, and they, yep. it sounds like it just kind of died with yep. that, and like open time went on. Closed and closed, mm-hmm. you know, and there's. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting. Great book to read. We'll link them. There are some newspapers, too, that I found, but they're just, they're very hard to zoom in on and read. Old-timey newspapers are difficult, so, but it's the same newspapers that Pam found as well you know but anyway all right well I hope you enjoyed that would you like a brain bath I would because that was a heavy case okay so for this I was like let's just go something totally different and you know we're such huge dog lovers yes we are so I'm on buzzfeed.com and I found some funny pet stories I love pet stories and it's just you know it's just the best so I'm gonna read this one that was submitted through Facebook by a woman named Adriana Diamond she says, my black lab used to get in all sorts of trouble. She, one, one Christmas Eve, she unwrapped all the Christmas presents under the tree, <laughs> even though there was no food under the tree. We woke up to find bits of sogging wrapping paper all over the house and all of our Christmas presents unwrapped. Like the dog is oh like having Christmas I'm, without you guys. I'm having- <laughs> Sorry. I'm living my best life. Right. And oh damn it, gosh. there's not any food or dog toys amongst all of this I bet the dog was disappointed oh I am I am sure absolutely you know the thing is I'm such a dog lover with my own I know that I wouldn't be able to stay mad right like I, right. because my I dog know. knows when he's in trouble so he'll do that like pouty look and I'm just like look at you with but your you're, pouty you're so precious my tiny yeah. baby precious mm-hmm. boy I am mad at you but but I will forgive you this right. time do you want to treat because you're so cute yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's my yep, problem. That's how it goes. I, I enable the behavior because <laughs> they're so cute. Sometimes I just look at the girls and I'm like, oh my God, you're so beautiful. Do you want Treats. a treat? I, same. I do the same thing. I'm like, look at your little face. Come get a treat. And then I'm like, God dang it. Why doesn't anybody ever do that for me? I know. It's all I want I, in life. I know. You're so beautiful. Bottle of wine. <laughs> Best I get is, you look tired. Did you not sleep well? Exactly. You look haggard, Amber. Yeah. Are you are you taking care of yourself? Do you need a multivitamin? Right. I got some in the back. Yeah, I... exactly. Oh, well, that's gosh. a cute. That is cute. Okay, well, we hope you follow us on social media, interact with us, guys. We love talking to you guys and getting your perspectives on these cases. Uh, email case suggestions to crimecurious at yahoo.com. We uh, love those. We love those. That's so helpful. And then we know we're pleasing our listeners too, so we like it. And uh, until next time, you're just going to, you have to wait two days, just till Thursday now. Couple days. Amber will be bringing you her case to finish up, to finish up our week this week. All right. Well, until next time, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.